Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're speaking to you from the rooftop bar of the Department of Astronomy here on the beautiful Hubel campus. Today we turn on our astral projections and look at a new scientific paper that analyzes destruction debris from the Middle Bronze Age site of Tel el-Hammam in the southern Jordan Valley, dated to around 1650 BCE. Pulverized debris, including human bodies, shocked quartz created by five gigapascals of pressure, and spherules of chromite and iridium melted at more than 2400 degrees centigrade point to a cosmic airburst as the cause. It's almost as if a meteorite or comet exploded in the atmosphere above the site. Say what? Who are you jiving with that cosmic debris? What was the role of cosmic phenomena? in human history, and how might the disaster that befell Tel al-Hammam have been remembered by local cultures, say in a particular book that mentions a particularly sinful site whose name begins with an S. Okay, so, so because we seem to have a continuing series now of space-oriented archaeology <laughs> podcasts, um, I, have, I have a very special lightning round question. Um, a very probing one at that. Um, did you or did you not want to be an astronaut when you were growing up? No, I did not. And, and I really, why not? Why not? Because I like to keep both feet firmly on the earth. And I think that's, it's, a, that's a cliche. Maybe so, but I think it's dangerous and ridiculous to <laughs> go into space. I don't even like airplanes. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I definitely wanted to because I was raised in the generation of Tang. And and not only Tang, but uh, at some point in elementary school, well, it was 19, it was after 1969, a moon rock uh, was displayed at a state museum in Trenton, New Jersey. Ooh. And my family went on a special trip to see this moon rock. And, you know, that was, I mean, I remember it to this day. Uh, so that was a very um, it, that was a very appealing profession. Of course, I had glasses by the time I was twelve, <laughs> and I had cavities by the time I was fourteen. So that, that pretty much scotched any ability to get get into hyperspace. Yeah, I sympathize there. <laughs> well, I um, definitely wanted to be a, an astronaut. I watched pretty much every. Uh, launch from probably yeah. probably Alan Shepard onward. I knew all the names of all the astronauts. Right. Everything. Um, they were my heroes. They, they they really did have the right stuff. But much as much as you, um, it 
it transpired that um, by the age of, I don't know, six, <laughs> I, I turned out to be so myopic that, <laughs> that I would not be accepted into, into anyone's space program. And also I discovered, and I, I literally remember this kind of on a jungle gym, hanging upside down <laughs> and becoming disoriented and, and realizing, nope, I guess I'm not going to be. That must have been kind of crushing to realize you couldn't be an astronaut, both of you. It was a little, yeah. yeah. It was a kind of a bummer. Yeah. Oh, I should also mention the total and utter lack of any kind of mathematical um, aptitude. Oh, well, right. That. Yeah. <laughs> Though that didn't really hit home until later in high school. Um, <laughs> You're lucky. I could, I, I could manage. I could manage a certain level, um, but. The other thing I'll say is, when did um, uh, um, 2001 come out? In 1972? 1968. Oh, 1968. So that, I really, 68? Yeah. Because I thought I had seen that on the big screen, and I couldn't have seen that on the big screen in 68. But maybe it made a, I think it might have made another round because it came out in a larger format, whatever, 72 millimeter or something. Right. Um, and that movie had a profound effect of, yeah, get me, get me up there. You know, oh, let, really? Yeah. Let me, have a, yeah let me have a crack at Hal. I'll take on Hal. <laughs> <laughs> see that, that movie, which I did not see until later, reinforced. reinforced <laughs> my, yeah, absolutely no way. <laughs> it's interesting. I did see it when it came out on the big screen. I don't know how I think, you know, I must have been taken, obviously. <laughs> yeah, literally and figuratively. I'll, I'll have one ticket for 2001, please. How old are you, kid? What's I'm the nine. nine-year-old kid with glasses doing in the front row? <laughs> That's the only place I could see. But, but you know, spoiler alert. When Hal kills the astronauts? Uh-huh. Yeah. That was it. Oh. I looked at I, I saw that as challenging stuff. Challenge. Yeah. <laughs> like, let me have a crack at this guy. Because oh his voice his voice pissed me off, his calm demeanor pissed me off. I really, you know, felt like, okay, it's up us against them. I'm I'm up for it. And, and so it is today. We just have them in our pockets and they're listening to us all the time. Exactly. But well, there, there was there was there were so many really profound space travel movies there was the original planet of the apes which true. is Same still era. a fantastic movie um so there were you know it was a very there was a real zeitgeist there that i wanted to be part of and there was a zeitgeist there that i wanted nothing to do with <laughs> Just, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah 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 it's <laughs> the unity of all of its variety i mean doesn't doesn't the end of planet of the apes put you off just having anything to do with that movie and, and everything that can happen that's bad in the future. No, it made me think, wow, yeah, this could have, this could be, this is it, man. This is how it all happens. Oh, God. <laughs> mm. I like life as it is. Thank you. I don't really. It's a cautionary tale, really. Both of yeah. them. Yeah. Two I... divergent paths that lead in, into a dystopian futures. But really, what could be more dystopian then once again coming home and finding <laughs> that your site has been pulverized yeah. <laughs> yeah. by um, a, a, an astral body. Yeah, um, by, but what's the term? There's a great term here, a cosmic airburst. Yeah. 
I mean, I saw I saw them. Um, they were they were uh, playing with uh, I don't know, <laughs> Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes, I think. Cosmic Airburst. Um, we, there should actually that should really be the next sort of um, you know amusement amusement kind of thing. <laughs> Where you you know go into some kind of you know three D con- <laughs> and experience, experience the cosmic airburst, yeah. Experience the cosmic airburst. Yeah, I mean, get those Disney Imagineers right. out there. <laughs> All right, so does, does does one of us want to set it up? <laughs> I don't. Well, I'm afraid of we're it. We're only going to heat you to 150 degrees centigrade <laughs> instead of to to the melting point of iridium. Yeah. Which is, 2400 degrees almost right all right so setting it up jp you set it up no 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 you do such a good job rachel it's really all right wonderful. Wonderful. all right um, i'll set it up very very briefly great set it up there's there's this site called tel hamam which uh is just north of the dead sea and east of the dead sea. northeast of the dead sea in jordan and um apparently at around uh 1600 BC in the Middle Bronze Age, uh, it was utterly and completely destroyed. There's no evidence of warfare or, or earthquake activity or anything like that. And there is evidence of everything being heated up so much that that even pottery and mud bricks melted. And the conclusion is this was a cosmic airburst, um, much like um, the authors of this study have postulated. Uh, the Tungusta experience situation of 1908. <laughs> the Tunguska experience, they, it was a double bill with cosmic airburst. I thought you were, see, here I thought you were going to mention Abu Herrera. <laughs> yeah, that too, that too. You decided to go CE rather than BCE <laughs> and go for Tunguska, which I think is also a cosmic airburst as opposed to an experience. Right. <laughs> The most amazing thing about Tunguska, according to this article, is that only three, you know, reindeer herders perished in it. Right, right. right. And and I then started to read about Tunguska on Wikipedia, of course. Ah. And uh, there are like three first-person accounts, all of which are wildly different from each other. Oh, are they? Yeah, which kind of was interesting that's... and kind of bugged me. Uh, no, that's people, great. Yeah, people experienced it apparently in different ways depending on where they were situated. And, it's and the audience reaction to, 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 <laughs> to the Tunguska experience. experience. Right. Well, we should say that Tunguska experience in, in 1908, it also did flatten 80 million trees. Right. Um, and, and apparently caused, what did it say? It caused the sap of, of some flattened trees into other flattened trees? I mean, this... this <laughs> This cosmic airburst concept is, you know, it's pretty really frightening. Kind of, yeah, kind of extraordinary. Yeah. Right. You see, the only good thing about these futuristic movies is, is you know, every so often you have the, you know, the Earth people diverting the comet from hitting the Earth, so everybody is saved at the last second, and Are that gives getting? me hope that the next time yeah. there's a cosmic airburst, maybe we really can divert it. So right. Well, we need we need to get Bruce Willis on the line because he was the expert in this. <laughs> in the 1998 movie um, Armageddon. We better do it quickly because he's aging and, you know, the last thing I want is, you know, a, a, a nonagenarian in charge of, you know, <laughs> changing the course of, a, of an asteroid. So this site, Tel uh is a vibrant, super large, 36 hectare upper city, 
30 hectare lower city. I mean, that's, that's big. That's right there, a huge story that somehow has completely been eclipsed by all Middle Bronze Age scholarship. Never mind that. Um, is a vibrant Middle Bronze Age city, and it comes to a fiery end uh, in 1650, plus or minus. Uh, and the, uh, the publication of this data seems uh, to be very uh, careful, carefully considered. A lot of, uh, you know, physical scientists are involved in the analysis of the materials given to them by the archeologists. And it seems like a pretty uniform conclusion that this site was <laughs> fried to a crisp uh, and right. Right. pulverized at such a level that nano diamonds and, uh, you know, all sorts of other uh, high temperature chemical reactions took place. Yeah. Um, and I feel like they did a nice job with the data that they were given. I have, and it's all very scientific and well beyond my ability to, you know, assess it. It reads oh, yeah. quite well, and it seems to be written by, um, you know, right. And and it got into scholars. It, it got into nature, which is right. a pretty. You can't get classier than that when it comes to science journals, right? right. And which means that it went through some kind of process where people, where other boffins <laughs> looked at it. Right. They're not nabobs? <laughs> well, the, the nabobs, they had a, had a mixed opinion, but the boffins were very enthusiastic. There must have been multiple peer reviewers who actually understand the science in ways that we don't. Right. Right. And but, but clearly this, clearly the degree of science goes well beyond any, any kind of field archaeologist that I know of. Right. So uh, not not the scientific archaeologists that we talk about a lot, but the just the run of the mill, yeah. you know, field uh, field archaeologists who often are the directors of excavation projects. Right. P people like us. Oh, right. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I'm just going to mute us. Hold on. <laughs> Why are you even listening to that? Zoom recording. So this is also the second time that we've, you know, um, been through this cosmic burst, airburst scenario. We did a whole podcast on Abu Huraira and the effects uh, of this airburst, cosmic airburst on the site of Abu Huraira based on uh, scientific publications from that site. So um, we're ill disposed to, <laughs> to, to, to question the accuracy. Right. Um, and, um, but it, they do make a convincing argument uh, that this uh, ended the, that this led to a huge destruction of the site that could not have been undertaken by really any other explanation. Warfare, earthquake, volcanic eruption, which of course could have only been Thera and it's way too far away for that. Right. Um, or any other kind of uh, explanation. And they systematically provide a list of possible yeah. explanations. And the cosmic airburst uh, seems to be the most fitting one for yeah. the data that they collected. Yeah, and, and I'll just mention some of the basic evidence, which is this five foot thick jumbled destruction layer consisting of charcoal ash, melted mud bricks, melted pottery, things like carbonized wooden grains and 
bone and bone chips of humans and animals scattered everywhere and so on. Right, but when you, you find that kind of thing in, in any good serious destruction at an archeological site. What's interesting to me is that they looked at this more, more deeply using scientific methods and realized that these, this charcoal layer is filled with stuff like, you know, diamond-like carbon that could only have been produced by extraordinary high temperatures and pressures and little spherules, little blobs right. of right. melted titanium and, and melted iridium and all these yeah. elemental things. And zircon. <laughs> zircon. <laughs> and they for, all the, us, for all of us Zappa fans, you always like a nice zircon uh, reference. They use their zircon encrusted tweezers. <laughs> there you go. To extract these super teeny weeny kind of um, samples that could only have been produced as far as we know from the physics and the chemistry by super duper high pressure and heat con consistent with a cosmic airburst. But the interesting thing will now will be to see who, who gets on board with this. Right, and, and I, I think there's a, the, uh, there's a couple of interesting things. And one of them is, so we're frequently um, confronted with destruction material. And, um, and one of the things that we often find are, you know, mud, mud bricks and various kinds of melted states. So they had this big deposit, this big destruction layer, and they went into it into detail and they started finding, you know, kinds of anomalous things like, you know, really super melted shirts and especially, you know, evidence for mud brick in, in sort of a, a way that they're not familiar with it. And, and so that's really interesting in itself. Um, but what I find very interesting is this systematic look at what, could what can cause destructions. Because this is always a big issue for archeologists and in, and in historical archeology, span we're able to attribute destruction layers to episodes because it's historical archeology span and we might have some reference to a battle or some reference to an existing king that we can say, oh yes, these kings were battling with each other and we should take this particular annal seriously or this particular reference seriously as opposed to dispensing with it. But in prehistoric archeology span of which by and large, the Middle Bronze Age is sort of part of that tradition. It's sort That's of- something I uh, wanna talk about, but- Yeah, it's sort um, of a hybrid historical and prehistoric archeology. span We don't really have a sense of what can cause these destructions. Um, and there's a little bit of, you know, you know, there's a little bit of far out kinds of things that get mentioned in this, in this article when it talks about destruction. But um, it's a really, it's, it's a problematic thing. Um, identifying destructions and then identifying the cause of these destructions. And now we have an additional cause, um, <laughs> cosmic, cosmic airbursts. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you think there's resistance to, um, in, in archaeology generally, to seeing cosmic events as uh, causal factors or intervening in human development, human evolution, human history? I think there is, um, and especially in, and I'm thinking of the Middle Bronze Age as a historical period, especially in historical periods, I think there's, so when I first read about the article, before I read the article, I was like, yeah, right. 
And uh, then I read the article and obviously the evidence in the article, as we've been saying, is pretty clear that, you know, when pottery melts, something big and hot was happening. Um, so, <laughs> but- uh, yeah, Big and hot. hot. It was hot and I, heavy. I always think of the Middle Bronze Age as big and hot. Well, it is. <laughs> uh, so, so no, I think, I think those of us who are field archeologists wanna like, I don't know, think about the stuff we can understand, humans, all this, you know, we're not going back to things we can't understand as easily. So yeah, I think there's resistance. Well, but we, we accept that there, are, that there were and are earthquakes that right. have a role. We accept that there were and are tsunamis. But you know um, what? We've we've all experienced. Well, I haven't personally experienced an earthquake or a tsunami, but you know, we uh, we all experience them in our own time, um, and we understand what they can do, and we we understand the devastation and and the human. The, so the low frequency events like the Earth being smacked by a comet or something. Um, no, no, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't. No, I don't but, believe it. <laughs> but there wasn't any big systemic uh, rejection of the cosmic airburst explanation for Abu Huraira, right? No. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a rejection, but I, I'm, in looking around, I don't see a lot of acceptance and, and systematic rethinking that's going on in terms of the origins of agriculture and... Well, that's a different, I mean, because the origins of agriculture is a long process. Yeah. So an episodic event, regardless of whether that cosmic airburst affected Abu Huraira, and undoubtedly it did, it wasn't gonna change the traje overall trajectory of plant and animal domestication. And that's- Well, except that it was a global phenomenon that uh, you, know, you have grasses and forests burning around the planet <laughs> and cooling it by five degrees and uh, people all over the planet going, oh, what do we do now? Um, and here and there, it intensified right. it was a, uh, the trajectories towards um, sedentism and and uh, you know risk a riskier but higher more productive strategy of, of agriculture and right well, in terms of acceptance of, of theories so here's here's my theory on the acceptance of theories I don't accept that right. <laughs> I resist that yeah. um, you know it takes a long time. For, for a theory, first of all, to be fully accepted by the scientific community and then to kind of trickle down into the public imagination. <laughs> well, you know, and what about in the archeological community, which is really the worst of both possible. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, no, but, but you know, how long, and I don't know the answer, um, you know, how long did it take Watson and Crick's uh, discoveries to trickle down to be taught to grade school children? You know, um, how long there in my in my mind, that's real acceptance, you know, <laughs> when when it hits the public and it becomes part of the the educational agenda for everybody. Um, you know, how, how often do we think about comets in general in, in terms Not of enough? Apparently, apparently, <laughs> besides well, science fiction, does it hit the public imagination in a more serious manner? But a comet or, you know, asteroid hitting the Earth is more, should be more understood in terms of punctuated equilibrium than, you know, something that is more- Happens every day. Oriented. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, the phrase but, punctuated but, but equilibrium- But let's, I'm sorry? No, I was just gonna say the phrase punctuated equilibrium hasn't hit school children yet either, but- 
well, it, it came and went in, in the social sciences well, also right. a long time ago. I had a great bumper sticker that said, honk if you understand punctuated equilibrium. <laughs> and every now and then someone would start honking at me and I'd go, why are they honking? <laughs> but, um, but okay, so the Abu Huraira example might not actually be a good analog because it did cover such a wide area. This particular example is much more uh, narrow in its sort of purview. It just affects a very small area of the Jordan Valley and the northern tip of the Dead Sea. Mm -hmm. And it only affected, you know, a very finite number of sites. And in point of fact, at one point in the article, there is this, there are a couple of little clauses <clears throat> that, raised, that raised my eyebrows. And one of them was, you know, that this event caused civilizational the end of a civilization. And it's like, no, it didn't, not in any way, shape or form. <clears throat> the Middle Bronze Age in um, both the East and the West side of the Jordan River continues <laughs> unabated. It just ended in this one small little area. Right. Um, and, and, maybe, it, and maybe 14 kilometers away or 40 kilometers yeah, away. Yeah, like three major sites. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. And Tel Nimrin, right. It's, so right. they mentioned three major sites. They also mentioned 15 <clears throat> cities and hundred villages. It would have been nice if they had given a, provided a map or a yeah. list of all of the sites that might have been affected by this. But regardless, it doesn't end the Middle Bronze Age. It doesn't end the Middle Bronze, Bronze Age. But, but also there's also collateral, you know, there's the impact perhaps, plus there's the collateral damage because Jericho doesn't have molten mud bricks and so on. Um, and, and I was kind of bothered by the almost, you know, including Jericho and Nimrun, where they don't have the same evidence. It could be the same issue, but I, I don't know. Right. Well, that's sort of the next step. The next step would be to widen the scope and have <clears throat> all the materials from other sites analyzed by these under yeah. the same kind of, of categories. Yeah. Um, but there's also a um, sort of hiding in plain sight, a little bit of a biblical agenda in this yeah. whole uh discourse yeah. and that of course is and it's raised in the article a couple times but very you know uh, very softly mm -hmm. um, and that is the oral tradition of this event being encoded in the story of uh, the destruction of Sodom yeah yeah I mean this this and it was very subtly put in the article and you know quite frankly biblical stuff doesn't belong in an article in nature magazine why why Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> being thrown down left and right. Why? Uh, because it's usually considered unscientific, which is why the name of our discipline is no longer biblical archaeology. Well, um, well, all right. Well, let's, let's unpack that statement. Does anyone really have the stomach for this particular thing? Let's, no. How about we just talk about, about uh, Sodom? Yes, First. here's what I wanted to say. I don't know why I sidetracked myself. <laughs> <laughs> and now you've sidetracked us all. <laughs> was, uh, you know, sort of backing up from, from this little mention of, of Sodom, I wanted to see what, you know, is there a decent identification for Tel Hamam that's been proposed? And the only one I could come up with was the proposal for, for Sodom. But um, it's a major Middle Bronze Age site that, you know, and a lot of Middle Bronze Age sites are known from historical records from this period. You know, you got execration texts mentioning sites in right. this region left and right. And so is there any possible candidate in the execration texts for this site? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't do that much research. 
Well, that's reassuring. <laughs> we want to reassure our listener that we've, we've done really as little as possible. If only our day jobs in some way had <laughs> Relate, any related to this on our, yeah. on our podcast life. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, we, we try and keep those two separate. <laughs> so just safer that way for everyone involved. Yeah, if I had been up to the Middle Bronze Age in my ancient Middle East course, perhaps I would have researched that question. Well, let's let's go about this. Let's go about this in a, in a different direction. That uh, yes, it's definitely a gigantic Middle Bronze Age site, and it's a gigantic Early Bronze Age site, which is even more important. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just want to get that out on the table for everyone, yeah. but. Um, and Calcolithic, but uh, it, the authors admit, frankly, uh, and to my knowledge, there is no reference anywhere in, in a contemporary um, ancient Near Eastern text to a site being <laughs> suddenly you know, heated to 2,400 degrees <laughs> right. and pulverized right. by uh, 740 um kilometer an hour winds right um nothing and that and really bothers me frankly. why because this is a historical period yeah they're not writing that much in canaan it's not a historical right. period for the southern levant really they're not writing they're not writing much of anything at all period okay we've done two right. podcasts on writing in the southern middle bronze age is really kind of a liminal state as far as this goes and you know until we finally find the <laughs> archives at Hatsur. It's, it's just right. over okay. there. Across. Again, execration texts, various inscriptions here and there. There are Egyptians traipsing around. There are Egyptians traipsing around, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Right, um, okay, but so, so let's, uh, but, uh, but there is nothing, there is nothing clear, like a, no. le like a letter that says, Hey, did you hear about Tel yeah, oh, really. Wow, right, that's the problem. There Polarized. should be. There no, should no, be. no. Why? Why? <laughs> because why? No. These, okay. Because oh, my colleagues, these. my colleagues are very innervated by this topic. <laughs> <laughs> you get me on a Middle Bronze Age topic, and I get very, very. I don't know. I take it personally. I should talk. Um, but you've also got these Canaanites not traipsing down into Egypt. You know, setting up shops. Soon they'll become the Hyksos, and. Uh, there, you know, wouldn't one of them have said, hey, this major thing just happened up where we live? No, and because but, they had no intellectual capacity to even begin to describe it. The event, oh. like, like, the event was so unprecedented. It never happened before. No one has any experience. There's no vocabulary for this. How can they say, oh, you know, there was a, there was a pulse that ripped through the site picked up my friend Sanui and threw him 45 <laughs> kilometers and melted his entire being into a puddle of, you know, mucus. There's just, there's no way that they could even come to terms with this. So some sort of PTSD, they're, they're not able to discuss it. <laughs> PTSD. Well, it's a cultural you, PTSD. But didn't some, one of you mentioned that even in the Tunguska, yeah. uh, um, uh, what, what are we calling it? Tunguska episode <laughs> experience. Experience, experience that there were only, that there were three um, descriptions right. of it, and all of them completely different. They seem different, yeah. Right. Yeah. So you know, it's this is a hard thing to wrap your head around if you're experiencing it. Right, but you know what? Out in Siberia, 
where there are only 33 people living in the general area and only three of them are giving the story. That's really dear. And nobody else is around for miles because you know what? It's Siberia. And, right. and here it's not like that. You've got Jericho and Tel Nimrun for starters right close by. Well, and, okay. but, yeah. but, you're, but you're, what you're doing actually is making the case for, for saying, okay, they had no idea what was going on. They had no terms for this. No, so I'm not they, making that case. No, 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 no. But what they did was they they tried to encode it or explain it the best way they could. Like, I don't know, stuff rain, stuff rained down from the sky, destroyed the site. It must have been because they were evil. What other explanation could have there been? That's fine, but th- th- this, okay, this is the big problem. Th- yeah. That's but you're talking about. You're talking about this. Uh, this verse in Genesis 19 about Sodom, right. with the with, with uh, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire. What uh, other explanation could they possibly have come up? That, with? That's fine, except that gets this gets immediately into the issue of when these biblical stories are collected, compiled, edited and canonized and that's all much later so that's a whole separate issue it's not right. a separate and, and, issue no, and, but well well but let's let's just say um you know the the authors of the scientific article don't get into that they just say hey you know there is this kind of strange parallelism and maybe there's a connection but they don't they don't explore it at all so oh, I, I i i would have preferred actually if they had just said presented all of the scientific evidence straight and then said at the very end, I wonder how, we wonder how this would have been remembered culturally. Right. And, and that's, I'm sorry. That would have been much cooler to me. Right. And that's a very interesting observation. So when we were graduate students, none of us would have ever touched the sort of question of the historicity of the Exodus. Right. Because it would have been considered G. Ernest Wrighty and biblical archaeology in the worst way. Right. And 40 years later, there are conferences in which people try to come up with some kind of rationalization of Exodus and how it's reflecting the Hyksos and it's reflecting these historical kernels that then get passed down and part of the oral tradition and transmogrified by biblical authors and all of that. So maybe in 10 or 20 years, we'll be at a period where this is all sort of gestated and we can talk about it in right, a, right. In, a, in a more uh, open and um, Frank. calm fashion. Right. But Passions right. are running too high now. <laughs> no, <laughs> well, because- This is an important point though, that the things that we, were, we all were afraid to touch 40 years ago are now part of the dialogue as well they should be. And this is the tension that, you know, the gauntlet that we threw down 10 minutes ago between quote unquote biblical archeology span and quote unquote scientific archeology span because now things that were verboten are not anymore verboten. As right, well, I remember Alex, you and I talking extensively and deciding not to write an article about the flood narratives and the creation of the Black Sea and the Halaf period and we decided, no, that would be professional suicide. I think this was sometime in the early 1990s. And we, we sort of worked it out that, yeah, the biblical authors probably, or there was kind of a, a cultural you know, script about all of these events and it was all part of the flood narratives and it was right. all part of a big you know, homogeneous 
Near Eastern society, the Halaf, that then got, as you like to put, smashed by, um, by the um, Ubaid, and that you get then lots and lots and lots of you know, regional, partic very particular kinds of cultures and societies that emerge out of that, but that there is a collective memory of before the flood, of before the Ubaid, of when everybody was sort of participating in the same culture. And we decided not to touch that as young sort of, you know, young scholars who worked in the Southern Levant, because we would be branded as, you know, biblical archaeologists in the worst way. Yeah. And, and then, of course, you know, our colleagues in the last 10 years dove into all of this kind of stuff. Uh, and there's no blowback at all. So you're probably right that that, that would have been an interesting part of this discussion, except to say that it seems like the focal point of this article is the science and yes, not sure. the interpretation. Right. Uh, at, at, so what's the procedure from going for, for going from the science of, you know, extracting nanoparticles of melted iridium <clears throat> to understanding primeval uh, or, or, and for primeval accounts or, or primordial accounts of, of the universe encoded in foundational religious texts, which have their own separate um, redactile? <laughs> That's not a word. Isn't that some kind of a dinosaur? And I, and I, and I say that very hesitantly. <laughs> yeah. Being living near the museum of, you know, the dinosaur. Um, and, right, right. <laughs> um, wait, so, so that's a really important point. And here's my real, here's what irritated me about reading the, the <laughs> article. Um, the, there are two moments reading this article, which are tiny moments, and I'm talking about the nature article, that, and I quote, um, the authors say that the idea of the site as Sodom or not Sodom is, quote, beyond the scope of this investigation. But they say this after mentioning the biblical possibility, and after in a footnote dissing the uh, excavator who has published, this excavator of the site who has published um, uh, the identification of Talmam as, as Sodom. So they're talking out of both sides of their mouth, very subtly towards the end of the article, but you can't have it both ways. You can't say, we're not gonna talk about this after you've just talked about this. And that's what they're doing. And that just irked me for all the reasons you both have just said. Well, that's a, <clears throat> That's a classic um, artifact of, of a something that's written by a committee, as this is, yeah. where things are not completely, not everybody is necessarily on the same page editorially. But it's also, you know, since academics are, are passive aggressive, yeah. <laughs> you, you make the you make the point by saying, well, this is, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make this point. <laughs> I'm not going to go into this now. And, uh, and, and that I think, you know, de detracts from, from what is otherwise, so far as I can tell, a, a really um, first rate scientific analysis. And unfortunately we, we've already seen a little tiny bit of people in this, um, community jumping on this <laughs> oh there's that passive aggressive behavior <laughs> exactly <laughs> the word community said with dripping irony <laughs> no it's sort of a crushing irony <laughs> um you know 
jumping jumping on on the footnotes and on tiny little scattered oh, oh like you for example Rachel <laughs> uh, rather than you know reading 99% of of the the article and the results and saying okay you know on on the basis of the scientific analysis which seems to be for absolutely first rate um you know, this is this is what happened, and then you have to go to the second order question, or the or the higher order question, whatever yeah, it is. Go. Okay, what's the connection between this and stories, narratives, yeah. our narratives, and and uh, ancient narratives, broadly speaking, right. and our narrative about ancient narratives. Ooh, which yes. is a meta narrative. That's a meta narrative. <laughs> All right, I want to I want to just pull back for a minute and and mention one thing that really bugged me. Okay. We should do this is like the the irk the irksome hour. <laughs> yeah, this is right. It's like I've got nano diamonds, you know, like <laughs> poking at you. <laughs> yeah, wedged in my elbow or something. <laughs> what is this what is this stuff about a four or five story palace? Where did oh. Where's the information for that come from? There was a nice reconstruction. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, any reconstruction is nice. It better be because it's a reconstruction. But since when do we know about four or five story buildings in the Middle Bronze Age in the Southern Levant? You know. Well, they were all knocked down. (laughs) Well, at least in this one small area. I don't know. I'd I'd have to go back and, and look at that part again. I'm sort of guessing that, you know, they're... Uh, obviously, the walls had been sheared off. They didn't just sort of right. flop yeah. over. Th- right. That much was clear that it was a it was a shearing event. But uh, did, didn't they look at it from a the point of view of the volume of of mud brick material, and they sort of counted backwards on? Yeah, I, on, I think that if you're going to suggest a four or five story building in the Southern Levant in the second millennium, that, that you probably want to you know, tease it out a little bit more than just throwing right. it in there. Well, I was assuming that there are site reports on the site itself, as opposed to this particular destruction. Well, there is. There's a big. Around. There's a big report. So I right. got to find there's it. There's a somewhere. lot about a Middle Bronze Age palace in there. Is that a reasonable yeah. assumption? Once you yeah, know. I, I mean, have you ever heard of a five-story building in the Middle Bronze Age? No, but I haven't really kept up with Middle Bronze Age developments. Okay, have you ever heard of a five-story building in the Bronze or Iron Age of the <laughs> Southern Levant? No. Okay. So I, I could see two, certainly. Two. I could three, see three, maybe yeah. like two, and, and a and a you know terrace. I'll put it this kind way: of veranda were, on top. If there were gonna be a five-story building in any part of the Bronze Age, it would be in the Middle Bronze Age. Well. <laughs> by the by the the reverse backwards principle i think we've established that um anything else that was uh that particularly irksome to uh to our our contestants today no just that five-story building line what about you were you irked by anything else i was irked a little bit by this uh idea of an airburst related influx of salt that produced hypersalinity inhibited agriculture and caused a 300 to 600 year long abandonment of more or less 120 regional settlements within a 25 kilometer radius. Yeah, that, I didn't, that, that seemed like a kind of a reach and it didn't have the documentation for that. 
there was much better documentation for the other uh, issues, as far as I, I was concerned. I, I think they did demonstrate that there, there are, there is a, a salinity problem going on at the site and in the soils immediately around the site. Right. I, I, but maybe I just didn't understand the mechanism by which a cosmic airburst would, you know, tip, <clears throat> tip a giant shaker of salt onto, onto the planet in this, uh, in this fashion. Interestingly, right. I had no problem with this salt business. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't have a salt problem. I was going to say, very low be, blood pressure. It might be right. It might just be that. If only. Yeah. Um, yeah I, here's sort of my my summing up thought about this. I don't know if we're up to summing up at all. Just, I think we are ready. We could we could get into the summing up. Okay. Sure. So right. I um accept the science wholeheartedly because I don't understand it and I trust those who, who do. And so on, on the one hand, I'm, I'm very happy with this cosmic airburst idea. On the other hand, I'm not satisfied with two things, which is the um, other two sites in the area being kind of caught up in this and these two sites, well, Jericho certainly is really well established and well excavated and nobody, you know, I mean, this is, this is a big deal also in biblical studies, were there walls, were there no walls for the Israelites to knock down? Um, so whoa, that's whoa, 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 where, where are the Israelites coming to all this? Oh, oh, well, that's another thing, actually. There was, there was a, there was a uh, interesting uh, chronological assumption that the, uh, that the Iron Age one uh, begins in 1350 BCE. And, and that sort of snuck in there. And I yeah. thought that, that that also, you know, was a little bit of, uh, demanded a little bit more explanation. If you're going to start the Iron One at 1350, uh, you know, then you're sort of collapsing and telescoping a bunch of historical events to fit yeah. a, a textual agenda. That's very true. Right. That's a very good point. But and and all I meant by the Israelites is you know the story of Joshua, which can't be proved by the archaeology of Jericho because there were no walls standing, no city prior immediately prior to the Iron Age. That's what I meant. But but and I'll just get back to the other summing up thing is is um, I'm really bothered by the lack of material in the historical record. I really do. I said it before. I'll say it again. I really do think that if this is such a major event. Uh, somebody somewhere would have recorded it in some text, like, you know, again, Canaanites, Egyptians, they're contacting each other all over the place. There, there's plenty of writing. We just don't happen to find it in Canaan itself. So, so I just want, I want some more corroboration. I'm not opposed to the idea of this being in, in, codified in the, in the Sodom narrative, but, but I'm not, I'm of two minds about it. That's what I'm saying. Okay. I'm not troubled by, by those things, <laughs> particularly. I, I, I agree that it would be nice to have references to it, but as, as we said before, I, I don't think they had <clears throat> I don't think they had the terms. I don't think they had the tools to write it down. They weren't writing anything down, really, during, during this period. And if as the <clears throat> the science indicates this is a very localized event. That's a key. Uh, that's a key point. Um, you could be fifty kilometers away, much less a hundred kilometers away, and not have the slightest idea until somebody comes along and tries to describe you 
this <laughs> this event and starts waving his arms. You would so, someone I can't lacking even explain any, it. Someone lacking any body hair. <laughs> it has a, a sort of reddish tinge to them. <laughs> you would look at them and go, "What are you? What are you talking about, Willis?" And it would just it would just pass you pass you by. So I'm not. Okay. I'm not necessarily concerned about about that, but you know, right. the correlation... and that's actually why I think it's unlikely that this that there was an, any kind of oral tradition that made it <clears throat> into the mm. period where the where, where where biblical authors were actually haggling over what gets in and what gets out about mm. fire and brimstone. I think that I think those are all kinds of metaphorical terms. Uh, that uh, reflected, you know, the, the date of composition and not some kind of sort of quotidian, term. quotidian events and, and moral concerns. Rather oh, come than on, though. <clears throat> folk a, memories. Woman being turned into a pillar of salt. That's, you know, do something with that. <laughs> well, I don't have the problem that there were that there were folk memories. There are all sorts of folk memories that yeah. last for, for long periods. It's just... I'm all for folk memories. Right. And I'm sure there are folk memories of much smaller events than cosmic airbursts. Right. You know, just to explain why, why your nudgy neighbor is, you know, <laughs> oh, <laughs> bothering you again. And, yeah. you know. but, but, but they're, by, by definition, they're un, unmeasurable. They're unquantifiable until the, they do maybe get written down. And then you say, oh, that was a... That was a folk memory. Um, so it's interesting. Yeah, I think this whole thing is very interesting, and I think that we we always forget that the cosmos is trying to murder us uh, <laughs> on a regular basis. Is that the takeaway? <laughs> Look to the sky. <laughs> Keep your eyes on the sky. It would be nice if we had a another cosmic airburst event. Uh, so that we could, you know, sort of get a modern handle on the on, on what it all entails. Where, where would might... you like this to take place? Uh, I'm gonna. I'm going to resist answering that. In some place where nobody gets hurt. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, uh, but but maybe we should mention um, the two. Well, the the most famous uh, cosmic encounter, cosmic debris, was 66 million years ago. Right. Yeah. That's why we're that's why we're here. And in fact, nobody knew about that really until um, and people, you know, the Alvarez is uh, Louis and Walter, father and son, had this idea in 1980. But then they didn't. Nobody found the crater until 1990. Right. right. Um, and that's, you know, <laughs> that's why there are mammals. Um, right. For, uh, though, though, well, you know, I can't help but say there's a there's a pretty vocal segment of the United of America that rejects that. So, right. But let's let's restrict this to uh, you know a scientific consensus question. And it is there, taught there, in there, schools. There was no there was no scientific <laughs> consensus about right. Yeah. And, you know, the same way there was no scientific consensus about uh, about plate tectonics right. until until the late 1960s. Um, so, you know, I think we have to keep an open mind and for, for these uh, for these various cosmic experiences.
I think I'd also be happier if they found a impact crater somewhere near Hammam or for that matter near Abu Herrera because um, they haven't found craters. No, but it's interesting. There was another event that people don't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and why is that? Why are people not talking about well, it? Well, because it took place in the Middle Stone Age. Uh, the, some, there was a, a, an airburst over the Dakhla oasis in Egypt. Mm -hmm somewhere between 100 and 200,000 years ago that affected hundreds of square miles and turned, turned uh, ground, the, you know, ground into glass. And there's this stuff called Dakhla glass. Okay. And you know, nobody, nobody talks <clears throat> about that. And there's no crater because it was just high up enough in the atmosphere that it just- Right, I'm not too disturbed forward. about the crater because the, you know, especially the Jordan Valley has been modified and so for so long and that's, that's not a problem right yeah they talked in the article they talked about uh early well the first uh nuclear test tr the trinity test right which was on a tower you know 200 feet up in the air whatever it was and it produced a crater a very shallow crater right you know, a couple meters deep at the most so in a in an area like the jordan valley you wouldn't even notice that today yeah so unless we get a grant to go out and look for it <laughs> we would find it <laughs> all right final final words keep those cosmic events happening <laughs> but not in my lifetime <laughs> who, are you who are you jiving with that cosmic debris yeah, that's right always comes back to frank it does <laughs> the patron saint of cosmic experiences so all right very good okay well, this just goes to show that if you can't stand the heat of melted iridium, you should probably stay out of the kitchen. So as always, we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, educator in residence at the Savannah Music Festival, for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our longtime sponsor, the Dumont Television Network, which is presenting the Maury Amsterdam Show, Thursdays at 9. To get in touch, leave us a comment. Send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, all one word, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.